and welcome to the beautiful boxing podcast so this will be the last one before i take a break there'll be no sneaky episodes there'll be no one-offs there'll be no this there'll be no that (laughs) well maybe there might be it depends entirely on what happens i thought i'd do one more but the Jarrell miller thing came up so i had to address that i think this episode is probably sensible to just do a recap of where boxing is 87, 88 episodes later. So I think some things have moved on. I think some things haven't. We shouldn't be surprised, nor should we be disappointed. This is just the sport we sign up for. But it's been a hell of a ride. That's the best way to describe it. But before I jump into that, I do want to touch on the, on the Jarrell Miller episode because there are a couple of things I wanted to address. So I do the Jarrell Miller episode. And if you listen regularly, you know that when it comes to drugs and sport, my knowledge is there or thereabouts. I, I can converse with most people on the topic, and I don't drown and I don't lose my way. So one of the listeners, um, we're not going to name names, tells his mate to listen to it. Right? I love this story. So he tells his mate to listen to it. Um, just being a mate, mate, you listen to this Jarrell Miller thing. There's a good podcast on it. Have a listen. Tell me what you think. Mate fires back about 12 or 15 messages about how I'm wrong about basically everything, which for me, I'm like, um, I, okay, cool, fine. So I get, I get, so, so clearly his messages, mate, slaughtering me. And he's that wound up that he messages me on Instagram and just goes, yeah, look, so he sent me the messages he sent his mate, and he was absolutely fuming. And, and, I, and like, look, I don't mind fan interaction, but it, it was a bit heavy, and it's probably because it's something he's really passionate about, so I don't want to shit on his passion. But he does, right? So me being me, I always give people a right to reply, and, you know, let's have the dialogue. So I said, what are the things you're annoyed about? And so he shared those with me. Now, I'm reading this all for the first time. I'm like, fucking hell, this guy, he's got in a bit too deep on this. It's just a podcast. Bloody hell, like, this is not my PhD viva. But I think we broadly agreed, and he just felt that the reason I said what I said was wrong, and he didn't agree with it. Now, so they're two separate things. Whether it's wrong or not, we can debate. Whether he agrees or disagrees is entirely his point. And I'm not saying this to embarrass him, actually. I, I thank him for having an opinion. And it forced me to think about what I was saying. So I really appreciate that. I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if he wants to be known. But there were three points he raised. One, that we should, we should be tougher on drugs, Chief. Two, that we should not have sympathy for the pressure some fighters are put under to accept a fight. And three, that strength and conditioning coaches are vital in boxing. So I've got time today. Let me address all three of those. So number one, If we're serious about doping in sport, the only acceptable thing is that someone somewhere puts up the money. Whether it's a million, two million, three million is irrelevant. And that means all the top 10 in every weight class, male and female, because the female problem doesn't get talked about, but is equally as big. One day, one morning, Everyone gets tested, unannounced, unplanned, all on the same day, 
everybody gets tested. And then let's find out who fails. No, no lawyers this, no injunctions, no legal process, no Eddie Hearn spinning. One day, everyone in the top 10 gets tested. Once and for all, let's, let's, let's get there. If we don't want to do that, and if we keep insisting that the promoters determine who does the testing, when and how, then the doping problem's done. You're never, you're never going to address it because I am confident. Write down the top 10 heavyweights, right? Now you tell me how many of those guys are doping. So I want to do an experiment. So I'm not going to say whether people are doping or not. I'm just going to take the top 10 heavyweights as ranked by BoxRec. And I'm just going to say whether there's a red flag or not. That doesn't mean that they're doping. I'm just going to say there's a red flag. And if I ran a testing body, I might be paying attention. 10, Lewis Ortiz, absolutely. 9, Derek Chisora, absolutely. 8, Michael Hunter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's moved up in weight, so I want to have a look at him. I'm not saying he is, I'm not saying he isn't. I'd want to have a look. Dillian White, well, Andrew Ruiz Jr., Hiding in plain sight, the guy exercises without sweating, can still go 12 rounds and can throw the shots that he does. Hmm. I, I would also want to see what's in Andy Ruiz. Povetkin. <laughs> Usyk. Hmm. If ever there was a red flag, that's maroon. Anthony Joshua. Of all the people... I'm inclined to believe that he might be the least red of these red flags. That's what I believe. I believe he's just the least red. And I don't know why. I just have this intuitive feeling that if you were to line everyone up, and even if they were all pissing hot, I believe Joshua would just be that guy that was on the least amount. There's just, I, I don't know why I say that. And I know I'm going to get criticized for that. But he seems to be the straightest flyer of the lot. Deontay Wilder, I'd be crushed if he was. I would be, I'd be devastated if he was. And then Tyson Fury, we already know the history around that. So that's your top 10 heavyweights. That's your money men in the division. That's not even the guys on their way up. So all of those guys, for me, are red flags. And that's not me being conspiratorial. That's just me saying we can all find reasons why we'd want to keep an eye on them. And that's the problem with boxing. It's not like Jarrell Miller is an exception. It's not like Jarrell Miller's a 1 in 20 or 1 in 50 case in the heavyweights. He's not. He's just the norm. And so for me, as long as you put guys like Roy Jones in your top five, do not criticize Jarrell Miller. That's my point. Take all the guys we know are doping out of the Hall of Fame. That's when I know people are serious about this. That's when I know. No one has ever tried to sue to get purses back, like they did with Lance Armstrong, where they said, no, hand back the money. No one's serious about this doping. So that's why I'm saying let everyone do it, because no one in boxing is serious about doping. It's something the fans make an issue of, and they make an issue of it mainly because they don't like someone or other. It confirms that they were right to dislike someone. So, for example, I'm being hypothetical here. If it had turned out Bell, you doped, 
all the anti-Bellew fans would have a field day. Not because he got caught doping, but because it's another chance to give him a kicking. I think we just need to evolve beyond that. So point number two was basically around the fact that Jarrell Miller wasn't forced to take the Joshua fight. Well, he, he was, okay? He was. Because this is what you'd expect when you're having a fight negotiation. Promoter says, look, do you want to fight my guy for, what do you say, $7 million. Okay? And your response is, I'd love to fight him, but I need to have surgery. That rules me out of June. That promoter comes back and says, if you don't take this fight for $7 million, it's not coming back around. You can carry on fighting guys like Duharpesson, whoever it is, for 250 grand. By all means, carry on. But here's your chance to make 7 mil. You've got to take this fight. Happens all the time. In different contexts, you might be offered a British title fight for 12 and a half grand. You might be offered a Commonwealth title fight. You might be offered an English title fight for... Five thousand pounds and twenty-five pence, or maybe it was five thousand and twenty-five pounds. Who knows? That's this is what I mean. You get put into these corners where the ultimate sanction for not saying yes is you're told you're not going to box again. You're not going to get this opportunity again. This happens all the time. You hear Eddie Hearn say it on IFL: "Take this fight. You're not going to get this opportunity again." Now, that's not fair. What you should say is okay. We still want to fight you. You're next after whoever we get in before you. That's what should have happened with Miller. Maybe then it would have been a different outcome. Now, I'm not saying he's clean. What I am saying is the tale he tells of being compelled to take a fight is something that when you're in the industry, you know happens a lot. Short notice fights. You know, you ask guys like Ty and Booth. Ty and Booth would be like, look, give me four months to fight a guy, I'll be ready. And I say, no, you've got two weeks. But you've got bills to pay. You've got money to make. So you take that fight, knowing that you've been set up to fail. So I don't think Jarrell Miller was wrong in saying he was under pressure to take a fight. I think he was wrong to have this shit in his system, absolutely. But I refer you to point number one. So point number three, strength and conditioning coaches are needed in boxing. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And here's why I say that. Boxing is never about maximal force generation. It's not. It's not It's not powerlifting. Powerlifting is get all your muscles together for one movement and then you get to rest again. Boxing is about managing your economy, understanding there's a trade-off. You start throwing 100 punches around, you're not going to do the 12 rounds. So you're always trading off and you're managing your energy load. So you move up and down that spectrum, but you never really max out on anything. So it's more a function of how efficient you are as a system. And that's mostly down to the coach you have. If your technique's spot on, you're efficient enough, you're strong enough that you don't need masses of weight training. You don't need to deadlift 300 kilograms. You absolutely don't need to do that because there's no carryover. For all the effort you've expended in that, there's no carryover. So what's the strength and conditioning guy going to do? Have you running around with a fucking resistance band? tie resistant bands to your leg and tell you, oh my God, this is working so hard. None of that stuff turns you from average to elite. What it does for elite guys, it just gives them a different form of stimulation. But to be honest, you could get that just walking out of your house and hopping along the street 10 times on one leg, 10 times on the other. 
So it's fresh stimulus. It's, it's, that's all your brain needs sometimes. It just needs to do something different. You could walk into a yoga studio. You could play five-a-side football. There are all these ways you can advance your, your base level of capability. But from a boxing context, deadlifting ain't going to help you. You know, jumping onto a box while throwing fucking dumbbells ain't going to help you. You Sled pulls aren't going to help you. Sled pushes aren't going to help you. So you don't need a guy to give you this massive program. It's wholly irrelevant to most boxers. For a heavyweight, yeah, if you're moving up in weight and you need to bulk up, strength and conditioning helps because you need someone who can help, who can, I mean, who can get you from 200 pounds to 240 right? Legally. What I said in that episode was strength and conditioning coaches at the top level are normally the bad guys for the steroids. They carry the bag. They, they procure them. They hold them. If they get caught, no drama. You think Memo Heredia is a qualified strength and conditioning coach? Probably not. But he doped a lot of Mexican athletes. That's why they kicked him out of athletics and he went into boxing. When Victor Conti got kicked out of athletics, he came to boxing. People, come, people with doping backgrounds come to boxing. Go back in, in the archives and go and look at Mackie Shieldstone. So strength and conditioning coaches, as we know them, as these folk heroes who help boxers, boxers at 12 rounds, they're drug guys. It's the start and end of it. Why are so many of them ex-powerlifters, bodybuilders, weightlifters? We don't ask that question, do we? No one asked the question why Jerry Flannery was doing strength and conditioning at Arsenal, but we know that those rugby guys were on all kinds of dirty shit. No one asks these questions, but the, that's what these strength and conditioning guys do. Boxers don't need that. Pull-ups, push-ups, and skipping. Fundamentals, man. It's, you can do that. Other sports may need them. There's value in them. Rugby, yeah. Because when those big Polynesian guys run at you, you want that growth hormone and that testosterone in you so you can be big enough to hold off those impacts. Yeah. But those guys do it naturally. You know, I mean, Polynesian guys are naturally big. English lads aren't. So they've had to bulk up accordingly. You know, it's an arms race. So that's my, they're the three points I had to make, just so in case anyone was, un, was wondering. But I felt that that episode was pretty comprehensive anyway. But look, like I said, if people have an issue with what I say, you can get hold of me. I'll respond in kind. I have no issue with that. So on with the show. I just wanted to do just like a recap, really. Because we've done a lot of episodes. There have been a lot of themes. There have been a lot of sort of like characters that have popped in and out over the 80 odd episodes. But the first one zeroed in on Billy Joe Saunders. And those who have followed this journey will know that I referenced the story of how we ended up at Matchroom and <laughs> the whole process behind that. So, for those who don't know, the, the, the allegation, I don't want to call it, was that. Basically, Billy Joe hadn't been told about any of the offers that were made to fight various people, in fact. And so I think he bumped into, if I remember the story correctly, yeah, he just, but he bumped into, let me not say anything, he bumped into the promoter. It might have been Bob Allen. I don't know. And so they were talking numbers, and it was like, no, this is how much we offered you for the fight. And so he was. I mean, he's being kept in the dark. And I don't know if he's being kept in the dark by promoters or managers, but he's being kept in the dark around offers to fight. And like, oh, I think we can all agree Billy Joe's ready to fight. And he needs to fight because 
you can't call yourself a decent fighter when the only names we talk about in your career are essentially John Ryder, Chris Eubank Jr., David Lemieux, and Andy Lee. Whatever we want to say, none of those guys are elite. We can all agree on that. They're good fighters. They're not elite. Billy Joe should be fighting elite guys, and that hasn't happened. It didn't happen when he was with Frank for any number of reasons. Self-sabotage seemed to be one of them. But it hasn't happened with Eddie either. So let's just zero in on that point about it not happening with Eddie. Because Eddie's had eyes for Billy Joe for a long time. I think Eddie believed that he could do something with Billy that Frank wasn't doing. And anyone with two brain cells knew that Frank was never the problem in this situation. Sometimes, when you want to be successful, you have to show that you want to be successful. You have to put that work in to be successful. That means you surround yourself with the right people. You behave the right way. You remain disciplined. You remain focused. No promoter can change that in you. It's either in you or it's not. And so Hearn thought he, he potentially had the goose that laid the golden egg and you could put him in with Canelo. You could put him in with Golovkin and you'd make a shed load of cash in the UK and that would bolster his presence in the UK. Instead, we've had, this, we've had the same Billy Joe career fighting someone unknown at relatively short notice. We hear the story about having to get the weight down and get the sharpness up. The fight happens. And then we hear the talk about the big fights. I want Canelo. I want Golovkin. I want Danny Jacobs. And they engineer all of these situations when really Eddie Hearn's thinking of matching him with Gabe Rosado. Let's not get it confused. Billy Joe Saunders will fight Gabe Rosado. That's, 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 that's what you'll see. Billy Joe versus Gabe Rosado. If they could dig Martin Murray out, that's who they'd get as well. And, and so this is where Billy, Joe, Billy Joe's career is, because what's Billy Joe now? He's got to be, what, 32? So we've seen his best years. And that's the sad part about it. We've seen Billy Joe's best years, and he hasn't fought anyone. He's having that Joe Calzaghe-type career where we'll always talk about the fact that he's undefeated, but we'll never talk about his fights. We've never talked about Calzaghe's fights in his peak years. Because we don't know who they are. And that's where Billy Joe's headed. So I talked about it then, and I think I've made the prediction numerous times that Billy Joe will be in that list of the biggest wastes of talent in boxing history. He'll be top five in there. Because it's, it's inconceivable. It is ridiculous to think that someone like Billy Joe has never been in with a James DeGale, has never been in with a Callum Smith, has never been in with a George Groves as a professional. That boggles the mind. But that's where we are. And it goes to show that in this sport, you've got to manage your career properly or you end up nowhere. Now Hearn realizes he's stuck with someone he can't do that much with. So now he's going to try and rebuild him. And that's where the Gabe fight comes in and maybe a Danny Jacobs fight before you can even call out Canelo before you can even call out Golovkin. And Golovkin's on his way out. Golovkin's nearly 40, right? 38 this year. And Billy Joe's been talking about fighting this guy for about five years. It's a sad way for career to, to sort of peter out. And let's not forget the behavior during lockdown, the, you know, the how to punch your wife during lockdowns. You know, yeah, it's just... 
They're the sort of people you just wash your hands off and go, nah, not my circus, not my monkey. One of the other areas I want to touch on is this is a massive bugbear of mine, is how boxing journalists tend to have convenient blindness, convenient deafness, or they conveniently forget certain things. So, an example. We readily talk about drugs in boxing, and we forget that there are a lot of British guys that have failed tests. So we're quick to criticize guys like Jerome Miller, but we don't actually criticize the Brits who failed tests. Tyson Fury failed a drugs test. That's a matter of record. He failed. Him and his brother failed. We've never talked about that. Like, boxing fans have talked about that. That's never been discussed in the media. I've never heard Bellew criticize him for being a man who failed a drugs test. And they're both still back in the sport as if nothing ever happened. No one even talks about it. I don't think I've heard Steve Bunce talk about it. But he was quick to savage Mia St. John for being honest enough to say, yeah, I took drugs. Remember this. You're only ever going to hear from two kinds of people when it comes to drugs. Those that got caught, those that feel guilty. But because most elite athletes exhibit sociopathic behavior and feel guilt about it, the ends justify the means. So our boxing journalists refuse to hold the sport accountable for who and what it is because they love the access and they love the, the trips and this, that, and the other. They love the largesse that comes with boxing and they love the fact that they get to indulge their hobby and get paid for it. And they'd sooner sweep things under the carpet than tell the truth. That's all of them, you know. And it leaves an interesting question. When you ask Coogan Cassius what IFL is, I, he says it's an entertainment channel. That's what he calls it. Not a boxing news channel. It's an entertainment channel for boxing fans. When Eddie Hearn talks about IFL, he talks about it being a news platform. It's where he shares his news with boxing fans. And they keep it deliberately vague and confusing because then it means you can't hold Coogan to account for asking bum-ass questions. And you can't hold Eddie Hearn account to talking out of his backside because when it's convenient, it's a news channel. And when it's convenient, it's entertainment and not meant to be taken seriously. And as boxing fans, we lap it up. You get these numpties like Michael Benson, whatever he is, just quoting and retweeting these things as if they're, they're gospel. And everyone knows that Hearn, Hearn bends the truth to the point where, you know, I mean, you have yourself believing that you're a world champion the way he talks. But it's his job, and we've got no one there because he doesn't allow the access. We've got no one there to go, mate, I need to call bullshit on a couple of things. Look at him. Look when he has his Q&As on Instagram Live. It's always the same people. He'd never let anyone he's never spoken to before ask him a question. And you're going to see the same thing on July 23rd. I think Anthony Josh is doing a Q&A on Sky. You'll see how sanitized it is. Because look, most people want to know, mate, when you got knocked up by Ruiz, what happened? And most people also then want to know, why were you so scared of Ruiz that you just ran around the ring in the rematch? They'll be the questions. That's, that's what fans want to know. They also want to know, are you a racist? They're going to be all of these questions. Are you a racist? Are you a Muslim? But these are all going to get swept under the carpet because 
boxing believes in this conspiracy of science. And then you wonder why it doesn't make any money. So, you know, I mean, you've got these, these jobbing boxers complaining that they can't make a living. You know, these, these wankers like Danny Connor, the second-rate fighters who are even second-rate citizens. And you've got these idiots complaining and being bitter at boxing because they couldn't make a penny, because they're too lazy to sell tickets, didn't have the talent to do anything, couldn't even box as an amateur. And they'll take shots at people in the sport doing all right for themselves because they carved out a niche based on hard work and dedication. That's why boxing doesn't make money. Guys at Hearn know they've got the journalists under control and they know that the people in boxing are too thick and too lazy to do anything that's going to challenge the status quo. So in some ways I give Hearn a hard time, but I like the fact that Hearn has so much contempt for boxing, he does what the hell he wants. I respect that about Hearn. So when people want to quote me about something, quote me on that. I respect Eddie Hearn because he has so much disdain for boxing and its fans and he will do what the hell he wants, and he will tell you to watch it. And you know what? You will do. So one thing we've forgotten about really quickly is, damn, Anthony Yard fought Sergei Kovalev. And there was a point in the fight where Anthony Yard very nearly won. And that's still quite mind-blowing to think where Yard was this time last year. And, you know, I'm not going to say he was a figure of fun, but... He was definitely a figure of skepticism and people were, were convinced that he was just going to get marmalized and this would be the end of Tunde and all of these things. That's where it was headed, right? And so we end up with this fight that had very little build-up, like hardly any press, press, nothing. Just show up in wherever it was, Skrabansky, who knows, right? Just show up, fight, go home. In process, make yourself a multimillionaire many times over. So that's what they do. They show up. And Anthony Yard proved he's a dog. A dog. Not just, oh, you know, he's all pretty when it's easy. Anthony Yard proved he's a dog. Went out on his shield. And so we were all there wondering, okay, if Yard's at that level, where are all the other light heavyweights? Who could have done that against a fresh Kovalev? And you know he pushed Kovalev because... Kovalev folded in that Canelo fight because there was nothing in the tank. He didn't have enough time to recover from the hell that Yard gave him. So I'm not going to be a guy that says Yard was winning on the scorecards and then he got tired and fell over. I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is he fought better than we expected. And then you've now got to transpose that against who people said his natural rival was domestically at light heavyweight. So let's remember Joshua Bartzi would have gone a year, over a year without boxing. And I know we talk about the guy that he beat, I think it was Ryan Ford. And that was meant to be a step-up fight. But Ryan Ford's the number three light heavyweight in Canada. Now, I don't know if that's based on nationality or residence, but knowing me, they'll have guys like Baturbiev in there. <laughs> well, you hope so, right? You hope it's not just David Lemieux who's now boxing at light heavyweight because that would be insane. But the reality is Ryan Ford's a super middle anyway. And it fits this mold that they've had with Joshua Boatsy where they've brought guys up from middleweight or super middle to fight. He hasn't really fought a proper 175 guy yet. Now, when you normally do that, it's because you don't want anyone too powerful. 
when I bring a guy up from 160 to box at light heavyweight, he may have skills and he may be elusive. He's not going to hurt me. Not when I've been campaigning at this weight my whole amateur and professional career. You cannot hurt me. If you trust your chin, if you believe your fighter can cope with power, you're putting 175s in there with you. So when I hear that they're going to have Watsi in with Callum Johnson, I'm a bit like, that doesn't seem to tally with what you've been doing thus far. And I, I can see why Hearn will talk about, oh yeah, we'd love the Anthony Yard fight. But they're preying on the fact that Anthony Yard hasn't got the skills or the work rate that Joshua Watsi has. This isn't a discussion of, ah, oh, you know, Josh will eat up those, those chin shots. There have been enough rumors going around that maybe the power might be a bit too much at 175. That doesn't mean that Joshua Barsi can't box. It doesn't mean he can't fight. It doesn't mean he's not tough. He's given all sorts of people like George Groves hell. And George can crack. So let's see what happens when boxing's restarted. And let's see where they pitch him at. You know, that's where we'll find out where he's at. Same with Anthony Yard. I know Yard's been through family trauma and my sympathies go out to him because he, he's a good guy. He's been fantastic for the sport. He's been a great role model ambassador. And, you know, having lost relatives, we've all lost relatives, we know what that feels like. So my thoughts are with him. You know, A, emotional healing comes first. And B, hopefully we see you back further down the line. But, you know, Let's leave the Boatsy question as something we'll come back to in season two. Seems a lifetime ago we were talking about KSI Logan Paul and how, how the YouTubers would be the ones that brought boxing back to life. They'd bring the views and they'd bring the, the bums on seats and they'd expose boxing to a younger audience and you'd build up all of these fans and the day after KSI Logan Paul, what would you have? All of your amateur gyms full of teenagers all wanting to be like their heroes, KSI and Logan Paul. So now when we look back on it, we now just realize it was a disowned jolly for a lot of media outlets who were comped, paid for, anything they wanted, you were given a per diem, and all you had to do was tow the company line. So were IFL on this junket? Yes. Were behind the gloves on this junket? Yes. Were all those other seconds out, whoever, were they all on this junket? Yes, they all were on this jolly. How do I know? It was confirmed that, that it was the DAZN model. And this is the upside of living not that far away from the guys at DAZN. Like, we all drink in the same pubs. The fact is, they were throwing money at marketing people to make this look credible. The views were fake. The viewership was fake. All of it was fake. The subscriptions were fake. Any number that was publicized around that fight was bollocks. Now, do they sell a, a, a bucket load of tickets? Absolutely. Yes, KSI Logan Paul don't need boxing. I used to say this on the New Age po podcast with Martin. They don't need boxing. They're below small hall in terms of talent, but they outsell any small hall show many times over. They don't need boxing. Boxing needed them. So you can assume that that was loss-making for DAZN. You just assume that. Unless they've got really low rights fees. But then, like I said, those guys are rich enough. They make enough money. They didn't need the pay-per-view. They could have done that themselves and made money many times over. 
And so it comes back to this thing of we were worryingly drifting to a point where we were just going to see gimmick fight after gimmick fight after gimmick fight. Anyone with a big fan base who could be bothered to train in boxing was going to have a white collar bout with 10-ounce gloves live on TV. Now, I think the whole COVID thing has calmed that down and has forced people to be sensible again because that if the zone are going to use that to drive subscribers, they're already so deep in the hole that, you know, they just have to go back to basics, which is good, proper boxing fights that fans can identify with. That's how you make money in boxing. Always has been, always will be. But the KSI Logan Paul thing, you kind of hope has died a death. But Hearn is a sort of shameless opportunist. And like I said, he has so much contempt for boxing fans, he'll do it again. And we'll watch it and we'll follow it. But we've got to hope now that this idea that you can just manufacture credibility by bribing media outlets has to stop. You know, What happened to Bazinga's numbers? Funny how those numbers have never been recreated. But rest assured, when there's a big budget in America again, you'll see those numbers again. And they'll try and tell us, oh, it's just how YouTube works. Get the fuck out of here, man. Seriously? Seriously? We're supposed to believe that? When throughout this lockdown, every media outlet's been getting shafted, you see Rob Tebbett becoming increasingly desperate. Ah, we're going to create our own, our own ranking system. Motherfucker, who cares what you think? I mean, like, we don't, care, we don't care about it when you tweet it. Don't put it on a boxing social outlet and expect us to be interested. It's the same with Coogan, man. It's all just got increasingly desperate. You look at the guests they're getting, and it's become desperate. And it's got desperate because they can't carry the content on their own. That's the, that's the reality of it. You got you got you. I mean, Coogan, well, he's the godfather of all of this. But the other guys, man, they're just nerds, fucking nerds, man. That's what they are. You know, they sit there. I can, can you imagine just being sat there in Bedford and eating tin tuna and you fry it with some rice and you think you're really clever? Oh, it's really exotic. <laughs> you know, maybe couscous at a push. And that's what you're surviving on because you've been filming people. Then they make you sleep on the floor in their hotel room while they sleep with young boys. And you don't want to talk about that. But one day you're going to have to when the truth comes out. Hope you're ready for that. <laughs> but no, those media outlets are screwed. They're, the, the model's dying and numbers are down. But weirdly enough, you know, when I talk to Porky Russ, his numbers are going up. And I like how he's now managed to game the system where he's now doing more videos but just shorter in length. And it's done wonders for his numbers and it's done wonders for his subscribers. And I like the fact that he stuck to his lane and he gets terrorized and he gets bullied and people try and ruin his life, which I don't understand. The guy's just... Russ is just a guy with an opinion. You don't have to agree with it. You can just turn him off. Don't ruin his life, man. Jesus, he's got... I mean, he's got, he's got a family to look after. Why would you want to do that? Like, if you've got a personal beef with Russ, have a personal beef with him. Like, I've got a personal problem with Rob Tebbett. But if, if it turns out he's been doing delivery drives for Ocado, which wouldn't surprise me in the current climate, or if he's been stacking shelves in Tesco's, I'm not going to go to Tesco's and go, do you know what, this guy, this guy, this guy's a numpty. Don't give him a job. No, because he's got a partner and a kid to feed. I don't have a problem with them. It's him. 
And that's what I say. If you've got a problem with Russ, he's more than happy to see anyone out there. And it's the same with anyone. Don't, don't fuck up someone's income, especially if they've got people to feed. Have some respect. But in closing, let's stop with the gimmick fights. Let's go back to 50-50 fights, competitive fights, stars we can believe in, stars are authentic and honest. And that's how we'll make money in boxing. But I'm still talking about the guys on TV. We really have to start asking this brutal question about what happens to your guys like your Goodwin fighters. And I pick them because the Goodwin model is no TV. Like if I'd said Steve Wood, Steve Wood sometimes puts his guys on TV and so forth. And he seems to have an in with Eddie where he can get his guys as, you know, if nothing else, as way fighters. But if you're a Steve fighter, so if you're a... Um, God, I've forgotten all of them now. Mo Garib, example. Jerome Stay Ready Campbell. Uh, Lionel Sadofia. How are you making money right now? Secondly, how are you going to make money in a socially distanced world? I don't even ask this to take... I'm not, I'm not even asking this as a... Oh, this is going to be funny. I'm asking this as a... We have a real problem here. We're, we're really looking at the at the death of small hall boxing if we can't get our act together and work out how we monetize the product. You know, maybe some guys will go over to BKB like Liam Cameron's considering. I have no idea. What I do know, what I can say with absolute certainty, the notion that you're going to do 125 tickets for, for a fight now, yeah, it's dead. You're not going to do that. Not in this current climate. So how are you going to pay for yourself? And I think everyone now needs to think about this. Those days when promoters and managers were just focused on ticket sales and they weren't trying to help their guys get commercial opportunities. I hope you can look yourself in the mirror now and go, maybe you should have cared a little more. Now it doesn't make sense to be managing 80 or 90 fighters. You know, now it doesn't make sense to have restrictive contracts where you, know, you can only box in the Southwest or Wales Otherwise, you know, there'll be an injunction against you. There are a lot of things that were happening at the small hall level that get people shackled. And now these guys can't eat. So who's going to help them eat? I'm not that bothered. Everyone's, everyone's got a hustle to hustle. But I feel for guys like Linus because he got himself in position. Dion Juma got himself in position. And I can't see how they're going to fight now. All, all of this trying to force the board to sanction fights and whatnot. For the birds. So we've got a real problem now where you're only making money in boxing if a broadcaster is willing to pay or the public are willing to pay. So pay-per-view or non-pay-per-view TV shows are the only way forward. So to all intents and purposes, guys like Danny Connor aren't boxers anymore. That's the start and end of it. Guys like Danny Connor are not boxers anymore. They're scaffolders, they're personal trainers, they're delivery drivers. Because there's nothing else out there. Even if there is, there's no money. Can you explain to me why the first zone show in the United States is in Tulsa, Oklahoma? So if anyone knows what Oklahoma, Oklahoma is basically like the poor bit of Texas. I'm joking because it's, it's the state adjoining, but it's basically, it's basically just a dime. Like, and you'd only go there if you were trying to save costs. And, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about the zone later, but you've got to start worrying about where boxing's headed when that's your opening gambit. Or Eddie Hearn's doing it in his back garden to save money. So 
what, what's everyone else going to do? Worrying times. I worry about Dan Aziz. I worry about Andre Sterling. I worry about those guys because, yes, they're friends, but they're on such a good trajectory with their careers that this is going to derail everything. And they're going to have to rebuild from scratch. And no one knows where, no one knows when, no one knows how. This might be a good time for MTK to intervene and help someone out. But no, it's going to be tough to make a dollar in boxing if you're not TV quality. And I chuckle and I joke about certain things, but that's not a joke. That's a, it's a scary place to be for a lot of guys. And a lot of people are going to have to just say, I can't do this anymore. But if you want to touch on one of the reasons I think the boxing has struggled for re relevance recently, we've seen the gradual cartooning of, of what used to be a pretty serious sport. And what do I mean by cartooning? Some of it feels scripted, a lot of it feels contrived. Let's go back to O'Hara Davis and I think it's Tyrone McKenna, you know, the, you know, the promo, the, the backstage segment that they filmed for that. Yeah, it was funny, it was clever, but what it did is it cartooned boxing and it took that bit of seriousness away from it. And we've seen it, like we're watching it with Dillian and Wilder, we've seen Dillian and Tyson Fury, we're seeing all of this stuff. And it all strikes as being stuff that's been agreed in advance. And the reason I say that is like people are calling each other out, but they're pretty serious people here. And like if it got out of hand, someone would get hurt, but it seems all, it all seems well in hand. So you've got to imagine that there's been prior agreement between everyone. And, you know, Tyson's probably said, look, just go and do your thing, man. That just doesn't bother me. But this cartooning of it, it plays well to a Twitter audience that loves conflict, but it's not real. And boxing has always thrived on the fact that it's raw and it's real. And I know we always talk about we could learn from the WWE, and I think you can in a lot of ways, number one. Number two, I think the WWE is informative in how you can monetize your characters, how you can get the merch going. But let's not do the cartooning thing. They need that because they need larger-than-life characters because what they do is not real. What these boxers do is 100% real. They already have that respect. But we've never looked at that monetization model. We've never created franchises by which you can... you know. Well, by which you can live through these guys. We've never done that. And that's where we need to get to. You know, boxers should be able to shift three or 4,000 T-shirts because the fans want to be associated with them. Much like Tyson Fury is doing now. You know, I know Joshua's trying, but Joshua's almost trying to be too, much, too old couture, overthinking it. Like, you see, that just stay hungry, stay humble, get the T-shirts out, $7.99 a pop. Same thing with the Gypsy King T-shirts. Just get stuff out and let fans get behind you. And also, as boxing fans, don't be so self-conscious that you can't wear a T-shirt. If you can wear a Liverpool shirt, you can wear a Tyson Fury T-shirt. If you can wear an England shirt, you can wear a Deontay, not a Deontay Wilder one, because he's not English. But you can wear a Callum Smith T-shirt. You can. And I think it's on boxers to create compelling designs, and I think it's on fans to support and buy those. I don't know why they don't. It's almost like boxing fans 
are too cool to appear to be fans. You're fans. Fucking hell, man. You're fans. Don't act like you're too good for that. Because you're fans. That's what you do. You, you talk about it. You watch it. You consume it. You debate it. You get upset by it. <laughs> Some of you embarrass yourself sliding up to chicks in the DMs and all that sort of stuff, trying to pretend that you're experts. Yeah, I know who you are. So you're not too big, bad, and bold to be buying a T-shirt off a boxer. And the boxers need to stop charging 20 quid for these T-shirts. They're not that good. You know, get the price point right and people will buy them. Do you know, in fact, this is what I'd do. Like, you get Andre Sterling, Craig Richards, Dan Aziz together. They all put in a little bit of money. Find an attractive woman, maybe someone who's normally a ring girl. Post up a table, sell T-shirts. Yeah? Or have her walk around the arena selling T-shirts like the shot girls do. We don't think about stuff like this in boxing. But I think we're at the point now where we need to start thinking about things like this. So now I can touch on the zone. I feel, I feel, I feel warmed up now. I feel energetic. I feel like, wow, you know, I'm 15 minutes over my prescribed limit, but you know, we're just going to keep going. It's the last one. So I don't know. Break it up. Chunk it up. Should I pause? Get double the spins, double the views. No, 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 actually, you know, it ruins the average, so no. You know, the audience are too smart for that, so I want to carry on going. I want to talk about zone because I think zone are interesting in a number of ways. Because with the war chest they have, they should be able to move the market. And what I mean by that is, actually, it'll make more sense if I, if I share a story from my previous life and career. So one thing people won't know, interesting fact about high-field boxing, is I'm one of the main reasons most of you people got PPI payouts. So if you want to go back to early 2011-ish, one of my jobs was to work for a pretty senior guy in the West Banking Group. And at the time, what came into my, my inbox, my in-tray, was what do we do about all of these claims for PPI? And I'm not bound by any agreements with any of these organizations. I can talk about it. In essence, the initial response was, we can fight these cases. That's what people thought. We can fight these cases. And then in me being me, I said, find the documentation. What are you going to rely on? And it turned out, actually, that in all of the branch closures people had done in order to be more efficient and digitize the bank and whatnot, People had basically just lumped documents in boxes. It didn't make any sense. So all these storage facilities had all the documents, but you'd never find them in a month of Sundays. And actually, the costs of looking for the documents would probably outweigh what you were going to pay anyway. So we needed some analysis done around how much do we think it would cost. And I remember the number that came back was somewhere south of a billion. And I remember being sat in the meeting saying, we're giving people a free shot at claiming money, and you think only like 800 million is going to be claimed. Really? Why would the government even want to stop this? This, is the, this could be the greatest redistribution of wealth of the modern age. I remember saying that at the time. So we sent them back. They came back with another number. And then in parallel, I came up with a number, and I said, I think this is going to cost, I actually said 4.1 billion. That's what I thought it would cost. The number was revised downwards for a number of reasons. But that's how, you, that's how you got to a point where the biggest retail bank in the country said, we're just going to pay. 
20 billion later, 25 billion later, look at the state we're in. But that was, and the gamble was that move would force everybody else to pay. That was the gamble. We're at no greater disadvantage because everyone's going to have to pay now. Because all the other banks had said at the time that they were going to challenge all of these cases. But once, once they saw that the biggest bank was paying, everyone had to pay. So what, what I use that to illustrate the point that sometimes if you're really big, you move the market. You move it to where you want it to go, and so you win in the long run. Now, the zone claimed to be the biggest player if you go back two and a bit years. They said, right, we've got this billion war chest. Heyman was sat on about half a billion. God knows what Disney was sat on. Disney's sat on whatever they want to sit on, I guess. But you had someone who was like, this is just a billion for boxing, not NASCAR, not any boxing. And Hearn was banging that drum and Hearn and Hearn and Hearn. That's enough to move a market. And they did. Purses went up. Purses for pretty mediocre fights started becoming lucrative. So actually you were there going, look, I can have a really middling fight and make a good living as opposed to having to challenge yourself. You didn't need to fight for a world title to make, a good money, to make good money on the zone. And often a lot of people didn't. So there are not many memorable fights on the zone. But eventually, it catches up with you because the initial assumption is we'll just hoover up all the boxing fans and they'll become subscribers, which never happened. And that's when you saw the tide start to turn. So now let's remember the initial zone proposition. Sign up for the app, subscribe for the year, no pay-per-view. Eddie Hearn, pay-per-view is dead, right? Which then morphed into pay-per-view is dead in the United States, but is well and truly alive in the United Kingdom. Look at the numbers. Once again, you know, that, that slow shifting of position. So we were told, the future is subscription-based. You know, that's how you give fans the maximum amount of value. They subscribe. We give them the fights they want. And we've seen them walk back from that. So walk back number one was, I think at some point we are going to introduce advertising. Yes, we know it's an app and you've paid for it, but we still need to make money ourselves. So we're going to introduce advertising. Then we've had the discussion recently around Maybe the zone does need a pay-per-view platform. You know, it feels weird not having a pay-per-view platform from the same man. The same man. EH79. That's the plate. The same man that told you pay-per-view was dead. The same man that said he could never see a world where pay-per-view would ever be lucrative again. Now, pray tell, what could have motivated that? Hmm. Maybe it was the reality that the market didn't move with the zone. It moved against the zone. So once the zone went no pay-per-views, guys doubled down on pay-per-view. Bob doubled down on ESPN+. Showtime doubled down. Fox doubled down. And they said, well, okay, we still can't do a million pay-per-views. Well, we can do about 300K. And at 300K, 
we put the zone in a position whereby they have to do one of two things. They either need to get, what, a million one-off subscriptions? Or you're looking at, I can't remember if it's $100 a year or not, or $120, $120 a year, I have no idea. But you're essentially looking at trying to, trying to get to a point where you're then doing half a million subscriptions or maybe 600,000 subscriptions as opposed to a million one-offs. But it's that sort of model where the zone have to work so much harder against the pay-per-view platform. And there's almost no spare capacity to grow into in that sense. And so the TV networks are able to sit it out and go, well, this is, this is, our, this is our strategy. So this is our strategy. This is what we are working towards is a pay-per-view model delivering competitive fights, better fights, you know, standard PBC fare, or as Bob Arum tends to do, build, 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 have loads of big fights in short succession in any weight class. So both sides of PBC and Bob have been very, very smart in sticking to their guns. And as such, pay-per-view is still the, the way you get big fights made, as it is in the UK. So even within the zone, you start to get the, the factionalism. So De La Hoya doesn't seem keen to be working with Eddie Hearn. And now Oscar's trying to sign his guys so he can be the main guy at the zone because he can see that Hearn's weakening. Because Hearn just has Joshua, and Joshua's not the same guy since he lost to Ruiz. You know, you're trying to build a, a Joshua v. Fury fight, but Fury's with Bob. No, so it's not an easy fight to make. There's nothing... There's nothing within Hearn's gift to make that is incredible. There aren't any fights he can make. Billy Joe Golovkin, maybe, but we know Golovkin's pretty much on the way out. And we know Billy Joe's, he's flattered to deceive. Whereas Oscar has Canelo. He has the money man in the division. And that's all he needs. And so the zone have this problem of, <laughs> like Arsenal, that's how I describe the zone. The zone are like Arsenal. There's spatterings of talent there. So Arsenal have Aubameyang and Leno's okay, but the rest of it's kind of like... <laughs> but all massively overpaid. A couple of young guys like Saka, who look really, really good. Willick's okay. You know, Smith Rowe looks all right. But there's a lot of dross there, like your Mkhitaryans who are still around and, you know, ideally would just get hit by a bus. And so the zone has the same problem. It has a lot of guys that it's overpaid and they just stick around because they expect to be overpaid. And they're not guys that can make subscription driving fights. And that's why they were desperate for the KSI Logan Paul attention. And so the zone is stuck. We've got a promoter in Hearn who can't get deals done with anyone. We've got a guy in Oscar De La Hoya who's erratic as hell. Meanwhile, Bob is just outmaneuvering everybody and in the meantime, draining the zone coffers whenever he wants. Al Hamer's just moving in silence, but slowly dominating in certain weight classes. And so, zone, if, you, if, if you're the zone, you're like, we might have to pull out of this boxing thing. It's not working for us. Subscribers are not where we need them to be. It's costing us more than we want to do. And we're no closer to Triple G versus Canelo than we were two years ago. We're no closer to Joshua fighting for the undisputed heavyweight title than we were two years ago. In the meantime, everyone else has got rich. 
They should just cancel it, save your money, and say we're no longer in the world of boxing. We might pick up rights, but that's it. We'll pay $4 million for a Joshua fight. If it does wonders for our subscribers, great. But we're not involved in boxing. It's an opportunist play for us now. That's what DAZN have to do. They failed in boxing. And them coming to the UK will just be that step that pushes them over the edge because they can't make these fights happen. I don't want to see Danny Jacobs, Gabe Rosado. I don't want to see Mikey Garcia versus Jesse Vargas. I don't want to see these types of fights. I don't want to see Devin Haney versus Tevin Farmer. And that fight will come because Hearn hasn't been able to revive either of their careers. And none of the boxing fans see it. Team Matchroom don't see how ineffective Hearn has actually been. Like, Eddie Hearn's great when someone's already built their name. It's easy for him. But he can't spot talent and he can't build stars. He's failed to do that. And I think Dazona is slowly realizing this. And I think the next 12 months, as that debt mountain piles up, I think you'll start to see a slow retreat from Dazona and you'll start to see Eddie Hearn start nestling back into the bosom of Sky Sports. Now the question is, will Sky Sports remember how little respect he showed them when he thought DAZN had all the money in the world? It wouldn't be a proper podcast if I didn't touch on my favorite subject, Eddie Hearn and Anthony Joshua. Like, I think probably the last year we've seen a widening in the gap between them, I think. And this is really interesting because if we go back a year and Joshua just lost to Ruiz and basically you know, whatever, what, whatever value Matchroom were putting on their business probably took a 20% hit just off that defeat that they'll never get back because Joshua will never be undefeated again. So you start to look back on that and you say, so what's happened with Hearn since then? Has he built a star in the interim? Nah, not really. What he's done now is he's gone from a vo- he's gone for a volume play. So get all your guys, you know, try and tap into some Irish interest in the United States to drive numbers. It doesn't seem to have worked. Dig up some relics like Scott Quigg, give him one last payday to put you guys like John O'Carroll over. But we know John O'Carroll's not that good because he fought Tevin Farmer. So if you look at what Hearn was going to give us in 2020, happy path would have been Joshua Pulev, Joshua Usyk. Two fights we're not that interested in because none of them are for undisputed. Unless you're a Joshua hater and you want to see Joshua lose. There wasn't really anything else in Hearn's, in Hearn's battle plan we looked at and went, whoa, I hope he makes that fight. They talked about Billy Joe versus Canelo, but I think I said at the time, I just don't see that fight happening. It does nothing for Canelo. That fight does nothing for Canelo because Billy Joe hasn't got the record that Americans will fall in love with. Yes, the Lemieux thing was impressive, but Lemieux had been through the mill already. So Hearn hasn't got much. You can say Billy Joe versus Cam Smith, but that's a domestic. That's not a, that's not a battle for global supremacy as far as I'm concerned. So Hearn's got that struggle that without Joshua, he hasn't got anything. Now, I know you've got the Frank Smith, Emily Eubank thing. Is that a way you bring Eubank Jr. back on board? you know, give him a bit of latitude where he's his own man and he can do what he wants. It's on a fight-by-fight deal. I have no idea. But he needs something of that ilk. And, you know, the Joshua thing won't work. Like, 
People assume he's just going to run over Kubra at Pulev. You don't run over Pulev. Now, I think Pulev at 40 is there to be taken. And I think the only way he gives Joshua trouble is if he says, I'm not fighting for more than five rounds. Therefore, I've got five rounds to get him out or I'm going to sleep myself. Now, I generally think when you've got that mindset with Joshua, where you're relentless for five rounds, I think you will break him. Well, you'll either break him or you'll get stopped. And so the choice is Pulev. I think Usyk will grind him down with pace and work, right? But these aren't fights we care about. We want him to fight Fury. We want him to fight Wilder. We want him to fight Dillian. That's all that matters to us. And Hearn seems unwilling or unable to make those fights. So he's in a dilemma. As for Joshua, I think I, I like Joshua. I'm a... I'm a big Joshua fan, and I think I've become a big Joshua fan this summer. Before that, eh, but I'm a massive Anthony Joshua fan right now. You have to remember that the same people who criticized Anthony Joshua's speech in Watford are the same people who said, I'm tired of corporate Femi. I'm tired of corporate Anthony Joshua. Go back down the timelines. Go and look at all of their tweets. Why can't we see the real Anthony Joshua? Why can't he say what he thinks about things? Why can't he have an opinion? So he does, and he gets slaughtered for it. I don't think he cares. I love the fact that he refused to apologize for his speech. You know, you imagine Hearn was there going, please just apologize, please, please, please. <laughs> These are the guys that buy tickets. Yes, they're knuckle-draggers. Yes, they're cavemen. Yes, they're, they're little Englanders. Yes, they're football lads. They're a bit ignorant. They're just like, please just apologize, Anthony. And Andy's like, no. I said what I said. And Eddie would be there like, Anthony, Anthony, please, please, mate. I thought we were mates. Eddie, the slavery's over. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but you get the point. <laughs> so you get the point. You imagine the standard hern, right? Look, we need to clean this mess up. The zone are probably on to Eddie going, what's going on? Oh. I'll clean it up, Skips. I'll clean it up. I'll, honest, mate. Honest, geezer. I'll clean it up. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't make me have to do it again. All right, cool. But Anthony Joshua stood up at that point. Whether you agree with him or not, irrelevant, right? Because a year from now, we're not going to remember this. But at least he stood up and he was counted. And I think he's carried that on since in a way that's been positive and has been good to see. Yeah. I want to see Anthony Joshua just be that Anthony Joshua. I'll live with the consequences of it, but that's the Anthony Joshua I want to see. Because we get equal mix of family man, activist, boxer, fitness fanatic, friend. All of these things are coming together, and he's becoming a compelling character. And I'm not going to say I was wrong before. I was just disappointed we weren't getting this version a lot earlier. But I'm on board with this version of Anthony Joshua. I, I am. Win, lose, or draw, I'm on board with this version of Anthony Joshua because at least he has a pulse now. And I think we should enjoy that because if we don't, we're going to end up with guys that give interviews like Ted Cheeseman does. So the choice is yours as a boxing fan. But wider than that, I always wonder if Hearn and Joshua are really on the same page still. You know, when you start to think back and go, when's the last time you saw them being really, really close? I think Joshua's just on a handshake thing. Like, look, you've got a job to do. I've got a job to do. Let's just get through this contract. And then at some point, hopefully, Joshua will break free and do his own thing. I don't know. 
fight, that would be interesting. But in terms of her, I think I'm bored of it. I'm bored of the guy who's talked so much and delivered so little. I'm bored of the misdirection. I'm bored of the, the false hope. I'm bored of the bullshit. And I'm bored of all the people around him lapping it up. And going, yeah, he's right. He's not. Hearn, Hearn's relevant because I think we needed a promoter like this. But he's not as good as he thinks he is. And he's struggled to create stars. And he's struggled to deliver for so many people. And I don't think it gets better. I think he's going to have to make a choice very soon. Which ship is he backing? Is he backing DeZone or is he backing Sky? DeZone stepping up the game might make it easy for him, but if he has to go back to Sky, like, that's definitely tail between legs territory. You know, Just look at the four weeks of fight camp, shite camp, whatever you want to call it. Look at the four weeks of that. That's terrible. That's a weak stable. That's a weak stable. And that's where they're at in 2020. I don't know how much will come back from this because the man we're about to speak about seems to have nailed it. Frank Warren has done what Frank normally does. Just watch people, loads of money, make a load of noise, waste a lot of money. And in the meantime, Frank's just kept it simple, kept it disciplined, signed kids that can fight, and he's building careers the right way. And... As long as Frank has Daniel Dubois and as long as Frank has access to Joe Joyce, he's always a competitive proposition for a broadcaster. And I think I'm just going to say this. Frank's done it the old school way. Frank's done it the right way. Whether you like him or not, whether he pays his fighters on time or pays them what he says, you know, we can discuss that in another episode. Frank Warren right now is that guy. He's, if you've, you've still, if you've got a career with someone right now, you're grateful you got it with Frank because Frank's putting you out there. You know, Sadiq versus Richards. I don't think Hearn makes that fight. So thank God for Frank. I didn't want to say too much on it because people say I'm kissing his ass, but fair play to Frank. Also, fair play to Hennessy. Who thought McHennessy would be back? August 22nd, McHennessy's back. Shikan Pitters versus Chad Sugden. No idea how Craig Richards disappeared off that poster. And then... A, God willing, the return of Isaac Chamberlain. So that's my August 22nd. Some of you will be paying for a pay-per-view. I'll be watching free boxing and I will be enjoying the life out of it. So well done to Mick Hennessy on coming back. You know, I know that, that, that millionaire money that came in is definitely a help. More importantly, you, know, you don't want to start ma making all, all the various links, by the way, in terms of company ownership and whatnot. Yeah. Boxing's in a very murky place in terms of who knows who and who's doing business with who. Jesus is a cesspit. But that's not for me to say. One thing I do want to say is let us never forget we lost Patrick Day. And let's always fight to make sure boxing's as safe as it can be. Weigh-in protocols, post-weigh-in protocols, hydration, nutrition. Let's make sure we don't have many more Patrick Days in the sport. Above. I know it's a dangerous sport, but, you know, Patrick Day, a lot of people paid lip service to it, but, you know, I mean, you have to keep thinking about Patrick Day and the fact that, you know, maybe he didn't have to die. But rest in peace, Patrick Day, and hopefully boxing's a safer sport for your sacrifice.
Right then, all you hardcore boxing fans. There's <laughs> one thing I did want to touch on was brands in crisis. So boxing brands that I think are in serious crisis, and I can just tell you why. Hmm. Let's start with MTK. I think at that point where Tyson Fury had beaten Deontay Wilder, I don't think MTK could have been a more powerful brand. Now, when you get to that sort of level of vindication, validation of your approach, whatever you want to call it, when you win, hubris can kick in and you may just believe, actually, I can do what I want in this sport. And maybe that's what MTK did. I don't know. Don't quote me on this. Maybe they said, right, if we can turn Fury into a world champion, we can do absolutely anything with anyone. This is our sport to do with as we wish. It's nice. But you look at where we are now in July, and Sandra Vaughan has stepped down. The gym in Marbella is closed, which is gutting. Although, if, if you've ever been there, you'll know it's not a great facility. Its reputation is far greater than its actual facilities. And another thing I find quite compelling about it is there's a really good, I think it's either vegan or health food cafe just upstairs on the little parade of shops above there. And like that's kind of where you tend to see everyone if you've ever been down to train in that gym. So at that point, Bob Yalen as CEO, maybe it's a cleanup exercise, I have no idea. And we get the standard spin that Daniel Kinahan's nothing to do with anything. Sandra Vaughan stepped down. It's a fresh start. After COVID, the gym won't be opening again. But I think we know what will happen. The gym will be rebranded as something else, and business will carry on as normal. Boxing needs MTK too much for there to be radical changes. You know, boxing loves its continuity. But I do, I do think now with the increased scrutiny, of Daniel Kinahan and the business activities of MTK, you'll start to see that mirrored in the United Kingdom, in the Middle East, and in Spain. So it's definitely a brand under pressure, and I can see them being in a rush to make some of these fights happen that they were looking to delay into next year or the year after, because you don't know how long that brand's going to last. So on the subject of brands that are on their way out, the World Boxing Super Series has probably gone the way we imagined that it would. Um, yes, Josh Taylor won, but really we don't look back on it, and quite frankly, I don't think we really care. And we don't expect an announcement of another one anytime soon. I think that's something we're just going to consign to history and say it gave us a memorable night in February 2018, if nothing else. So what killed it? It's hard to say. It's a great concept, but... When you're handing fighters over to another promoter and you're not really seeing all of the value in that, after a while you're thinking to yourself, why am I putting my guys on someone else's platform to lose in some cases, and in some cases to win and I don't get the money for it? So then you're like, well, I'm not going to have my guys on there. What it did, I think, is it convinced promoters to have more than one fighter in their stable per weight class and just do their own version of World Boxing Super Series, have internal fights, and then when you get a winner from that, make noise to fight the top guy in the other stable. PBC have been doing it for a while. That's why we're talking about Errol Spence versus Terence Crawford. If Keith Thurman comes back and beats Errol Spence, we'll be talking about Keith Thurman versus Terence Crawford. But Crawford hasn't been through that mill. 
So we need to see Crawford Pacquiao. And then we can start to make those sorts of calls. And so I think as these promoters start to hoover up talent, the desire to have a World Boxing Super Series type format doesn't really work. So it's only going to work in really unfashionable weight categories. And fans don't want to see those. So we're bored of the cruiserweights. I don't think we want to see 140 again. And I don't think we give a monkeys about flyweight or superfly, to be honest with you. So the World Boxing Super Series, probably on its way out too. And I know people talk about the the Denaire versus Inoue fight, but just remember what Rigondeaux did to Denaire before we talk about him being a live opponent in this fight. But then that brings us to our next guy. So Josh Taylor, right? Taylor wins the World Boxing Super Series, builds the brand, and then basically just pisses it all up the wall. And you never know why people are so self-destructive because in person, Josh is a decent guy. Humble, but we had the nightclub incident. We had a couple of social media slip-ups and just generally adrift into irrelevance now. You know, people say, yeah, fight Ramirez. But you almost see those guys moving up in weight to chase better fights. So I think, you know, Josh is going to have to go up as well because he's with Bob, so he can do that. But it's definitely not the same spark around Josh Taylor that there was when he won the World Boxing Super Series. And I'd say the same thing about Carl Frampton. Like, when's the last time Carl gave us a fight that we really wanted or a fight that we find memorable? Probably Warrington. And even in the Warrington fight, you're always worried that he was going to get stopped. And so Carl, Carl needs the Jamal Herring fight. Or for me, an Isaac Dogbo fight. He needs that kind of fight that's going to make him not relevant again, but get him right back up to the top. Because I'm a Carl Frampton fan, if I'm being honest. And... I love the Frampton we had in that run from Scott Quigg through to Santa Cruz too. And I thought that was a special time for Carl. And, you know, I don't know if we'll get back to that again before he retires, but that's what you'd love at the moment. It's not where it needs to be. And it's the same with Josh Warrington. He signed with Hearn, and we're hearing about him fighting Kid Galahad. For God's sake. You know, you go from f- potentially fighting a Shakur Stevenson and Oscar Valdez to Kid Galahad. And... When I look at that and I think, is, is this going to be Hearn ruining another career? Did he just re-sign him to bury him because, you know, he hates what Frank was able to create with him? I don't know. But Josh Warrington's another one where I worry that his brand is on the way down as well. I hope it isn't because I think he can offer some compelling fights. Well, as I also know what Eddie Hearn's ability to make fights is like. So Josh might actually just have to do the circuit of British and fringe 126 contenders, which isn't ideal. And then the last name on that list is Andy Ruiz. I'm glad that people are now looking for signs of sweat on Andy Ruiz because there's too many training videos where he looks fresh, which makes me wonder, is he actually training? And the thing is, whether he's 300 pounds or 90 pounds, he seems to look exactly the same. So I'm, I'm worried about him. I think he needs a big fight, and he needs a big win to maintain his status among the top five heavyweights. But I still believe, if I'm being honest with you, I believe he's, he's climbed his Everest and he's happy. He'll be happy now just making half a mil here, half a mil there. I don't think he's got ambitions to get the belts back. Another thing where we've seen the brand value fall, I think, is amateur boxing. So the lack of the Olympics this year has definitely had an impact because there are no new stars to get excited by. And so we're still here having to follow the same guys we followed last year. 
add to that the fact that there's no clue on when gyms will open from an amateur perspective, and there's no discussion about how on earth you do shows. So I'm honest. I'm honestly worried that we may not have any amateur boxing for the next six months, maybe even the next year. A because it will be so hard to organize the shows. Yeah, in terms of, and people don't realize this, the officials are generally in their 60s and 70s. So your officer in charge, some of your judges, and they can't be in a, in a school gym surrounded by loads of people. So you'd almost have to do it in, in isolation. And then there's no money coming in. So how on earth do you put a show on when, I think it costs about six, 700 quid to do a show even before you sold a ticket. So how on earth do you do that? So I do worry about that. Because there's, there are knock-on effects. Where are the kids going to go? I mean that from a boxing perspective. I mean that from like a youth crime perspective, mental health. All of those things matter. Because boxing gyms do a lot more than teach you how to punch people in the face. So I do worry about that as well. So what I wanted to do as well was touch on some of the, the sadder elements in boxing. And actually, to those who are listening this far, thank you very much. But more importantly... Please, please, please get in touch, retweet, message, whatever, with the things that have upset you most about boxing. I just want to touch on a few from my perspective. So one of them is the fact that there are two speeds to the doping process, and it depends on how much money you have. The analogy I'd use is this. If we look at doping as the O2, right, and it's the O2 with the lights off, Someone like a Liam Cameron is right at the top, second tier, blindfolded with his shoelaces tied together and he's trying to get out. And that's how I describe Liam Cameron's situation. Um, Tyson Fury, similar situation, but about 10 people helped him, undid his shoelaces, took the blindfold off, walked him out the building. Dillian White, red carpet out the building. Anthony Joshua doesn't even go in the building. And so you've got this two-speed test determined by how much money you have. And so you don't get justice. You get what your lawyers can protect you from. And so Liam Cameron suffered from this while other people have got away. And I think that, that's disappointing. Like we accept there's a doping problem in boxing, but what's unfair is when you are caught, then there's seemingly no consistency. So that's one thing that's frustrating me. I think another thing is, it seems that we, we live in a really polarized world at the moment, where you're one thing or the other. You, you can't be in the middle and you can't be nothing. You're one or the other. And what that's also done is it's meant that there's no such thing as moderate language anymore. So when something happens, we, we revert to the most extreme language. And this is because on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook, no one's really reacting to moderate language. No one's really reacting to, do you know what? That was a four out of ten fight. The fight has to be bullshit. A bad decision has to be a robbery. Or your fighter has to be the greatest. And so that means that we can't even come together and we can't even have a debate because it's so binary. You're either with me or against me. And that upsets me because when everyone's together, socially, drinking, boxing talk, whatever, it's all good. 
And so it's a real shame that we can't maintain that and be civil to each other on Twitter, but that's the nature of the beast and that's not for us to fix. But it's been sad that, you know, you either, you either love Fury or you hate him. You can't be indifferent. Even indifference is counted as hate. So that's one other thing that's upset me. The third thing is, no, and this is more personal than anything else, it's been the slow disintegration of the group that we had once formed. And so it's things like I don't really speak as much to Richie Gray as I'd like to, and I really like Richie Gray. I think, I think boxing's missing a trick by not elevating him to a higher level. I like Richie. Richie's a smart guy, speaks a lot of sense, gets boxing. Same with Craig Scott. Like, we're not... We're not in each other's worlds like we used to, and I guess obviously the boxing social thing doesn't help, but that's such as life. And so that takes away some of the energy as well. And it's a real shame because that group was a real force for good. I know it helped some people engage with boxing in a way that they never thought possible. I know some people have found friends who they can come to London and they know they've got people to have a beer with. And it's a shame that we haven't been able to grow that. But lesson learned, you know, listen... When you have an opportunity to build a community, put your egos to the side. Do what's best for the group for as long as you can, and you'll have something that will last a lifetime. So that's one of the things that, you know, just looking back, probably over the last year and a bit, where I'm like, I wish that had been better. But like I said, you know, I've still got Martin, still got Andy, so we still shoot a few voice notes and messages in the group chat, and I don't think you'll ever break that bond, because, listen, we... We put it all on the line for a good few years. And being brutally honest, they're the things I miss when I'm recording, is knowing that there's someone in there. You know where you just see the, either the looks of shock, stress, exasperation, th- those sorts of things are the things that you do miss. Equally bored of re- retirement talk, comeback talk. You know the sort of talk where people are just gathering attention. Eh, we need to stop all that. I don't, the other thing that bugs me is Boxers being bitches, and Danny Conn is a prime example of this, where it hasn't worked out in their own lives, it hasn't worked out in their own careers. So they think they've got the right to dish shits on whoever they want, and that's cool. It's cool because the reason you didn't go far in your career is everyone and their dog thinks you're a dickhead. And it's sad because when Danny Connor tweets me dumb shit like he does, what ends up happening is, Everyone that knows him sends me the messages he sends them. And I don't think there's a bigger kisser of ass in boxing. And people need to stop kissing ass in boxing. Be a man. Be a man, fight your heart out, entertain the fans, and you don't have to kiss ass. It was embarrassing watching some of the things that he sends. Oh my God, so-and-so loved you. He loved you. I wish he'd loved you the way he loves me. Yeah, he's an embarrassment, man. Boxing's better off without pricks like him. If I'm being brutally honest. I want to come back to Patrick Day, though, because when you lose someone in that manner, there are really two victims. There's Patrick Day and there's Charles Conwell, who was obviously the opponent of the night. And so he has to live with it. And that saddens me because, let's be brutally honest, anyone could have been Patrick Day. That can happen at any given moment. With the way boxing structured, it can and we don't seem to be obsessed with looking at it, which we should be. Now, 
I don't know what the solution is. It's definitely something to do with hydration and definitely something to do with metabolites and so forth. But it doesn't seem that there's a lot of traction or the appetite to do anything. That saddens me. Um, but rest in peace, Patrick Day, and you can only hope that Charles can rebuild his career and come again. Thinking of things that have saddened me, the whole MTK thing has, for a number of reasons. One, when will boxing ever get its act together? I find it interesting that we make a whole heap of noise about Daniel Kinahan being involved in discussing heavyweight fights, but James Prince seems to get away unscathed, but I guess that's a proximity thing, and the fact that he's not British or Irish kind of helps in the UK. But Bob Arum has no qualms about working with some of the scariest people in this world. But there's some of the things, and I'm hoping, you know, as we move into season two, we'll move away from some of them. I don't believe we will. I think boxing is rotten by design. It is opaque by design. And it's just simply designed for you fans to believe the lies and part with your money. So the only question is, are you going to believe the lies and part with your money? I'm going to sign out because I've been talking for so long. I'm probably an hour and 20 in as an estimate. So I just want to thank everybody who has been with me in this journey. You know, the guests, Isaac, Umar, Greg, Dens, Bentley, uh, Larry, Jesus, Larry. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we lit a fire under the sport with that episode. And maybe... Season two is all about those sorts of episodes. Now, I don't know how far we can go with those, but maybe getting some guys to just be honest about what really goes on would be moving the concept forward. But we'll try and do something different. I can't say it'll be different on day one, but we'll get there. We'll get to a point of difference. And so all those sorts of things. And it's, I'm grateful to everyone that's been involved, the support, the love, the criticism, because I live by that, and as I've shown, you know, I will respond to all things where needed. I have no issue with that, and look, that's how you get better. It's the it's the criticisms that get you going. I should even thank the guy that that loves licking out Paul Hindley's ass, the guy that gave me a hard time. I know he still listens, so I haven't forgotten about you. But now, thanks to everyone for supporting the guys who have listened to every one of these episodes. All of you, it's not fair to to name everyone because I'm going to miss someone. You know, in my head, I was thinking it through and I was like, God, I'd probably get about 15 names in and then you just have a mind blank because after recording for over an hour, your brain's not the sharpest. So listen, we'll be back again and let's hope in the interim, boxing actually takes a few steps forward. Thanks, guys. Take care and have a great day. 